and uh, fill up Bob Gregg's spot. <laughs> Well, you get the guitar. I'll see that you're in there, pal. I promise you. <laughs> now, last week, <clears throat> we finished our, our two-part series on uh, the Bible concept of worship, spirit, and truth. And uh, I, I tied it all into the other six things that you lose when you give up your Bible. Now you should have a complete uh, understanding of not only what happens when you give up the Word of God, and these are the things that you lose, but it really is an insight into where we're at in America today and where we're headed in America today, unfortunately. And, you know, I, I, I've always tried uh, to uh, give you the understanding of how important a history is uh, with your Bible. Most of God's people, you know, they, they don't see the relevance between the two. Uh, fortunately, unfortunately, most of them don't even get into the Bible that much. But uh, if you're ever going to get a complete understanding of God and what He's doing, you're going to have to uh, you're going to have to get a handle on not only your Bible but the hand of God down through history, the history of the world. Next year, hopefully, in Bible Institute, I'm finishing up the last three books this year. Hopefully, I'll I'll get those done. We're just about finished with Hebrews, and then. I will move into the other two books. But next year, Lord willing, uh, the last year of Institute, maybe the last five years of Institute, uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to do a complete in-depth study of, of church history. Uh, I'm going to start with Hebrew history, and I'm going to lay that out to bring that into perspective. Then we're going to get into New Testament church history. And then obviously we'll finish it up where it hits home the most, and that is American history. And, uh, you know, all, all, all history working together uh, with the Bible to bring about, uh, you know, God's one day that the whole Bible is built around, and that will be the day of the Lord. And, you know, and I gave you uh, just a glimpse, really, of how that God's hand and God had a plan for, uh, for America. And I showed you many, many times we've talked about the parallels <clears throat> between God's nation of Israel in the Old Testament and God wanting America to do uh, for him in the New Testament. And they all go through the, the six same aspects. One, they all both go through a formulation where God starts them. Uh, they both have the Word of God together <clears throat> when that formulation begins. They're both called out. Uh, they're both established. They both have their greatest apex of the time in history then they both follow a downhill demise, and then, unfortunately, they both go into captivity, Israel in 606 B.C. and us uh, today. And, uh, you know, God's plan for America, there's no question about it when you put it all together, was to have America be the nation that carried the gospel to the ends of the earth. There's only two nations. And I'm not saying that uh, I know that a nation of Israel uh, it was God's nation uh, in, in particular. And I'm not telling you that America was God's nation in the same aspect that Israel was. Israel was under the physical kingdom of God. We're under the spiritual kingdom of heaven. But God gave us a nation that through it, the men and women who were spiritually born again uh, would have everything that they need to carry the gospel to the end of the world. It was always interesting to me that at the end of World War II, and you know, this is so vital that you learn this. 
You'll learn it from history, and it's a great lesson for us today in our own life with all that we go through. Every time there's a, there's a gigantic upheaval in the world, every time there's some catastrophe that is, you know, rocks everybody, the, the world then becomes ripe, or that particular region becomes ripe for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's a thing where God uses things like that. Most of the people don't see that. Most of God's people are so timid and afraid of having their comfort zone disrupted that they never see that the great, great, great uh, movement of God comes out of catastrophes. Uh, you know, <clears throat> and you've heard me talk about the Titanic before. The Titanic sank in 1912. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, uh, America at that point was in the midst of the industrial age. And it wasn't anything that was being made around the world. And shipbuilding was at its zenith. There's no question about it. So they put forth the Titanic. And the Titanic was billed as the ship that even God himself could not sink. We saw how that went on June, on, on, on April 12th, uh, you know, in 1912. And uh, that rocked the world so much that it opened up a great revival that people, people got saved. You know, at the end of World War II, you know, we had defeated Japan, and, uh, you know, General Douglas MacArthur uh, became the provincial uh, governor of Japan, and his goal was to rebuild Japan and make it into a democracy because they had worshipped the god, the emperor, you know, and all the crazy stuff that was going on there. And he actually was given the task to rebuild it the right way, uh, based on America's model. I don't know if that was good or not, but that was the thing. They asked him what he needed. You know what he told them? And MacArthur, as far as I know, wasn't even saved. I don't think from anything I read he ever was. But it goes to show you where men's minds were back then, even the unsaved mind versus where they're at today. They asked General MacArthur what he needed to do the job. You know what he told them? He said, send me 10,000 missionaries. Now, that's what an unsaved man's perspective was on what he needed to build a country the right way. Now, unfortunately... America was pretty well spiraling at that point and had been almost 50 years in dumping the Bible. So instead of sending him 10,000 missionaries, we sent him Benny Goodman. We sent him baseball, hot dogs. Uh, we sent him all the things that we had instead of the thing that they really needed that probably would have made a difference. You know why? That country was ready for, uh, it was ready for change. And so it's a thing where it's, it's an incredible study. And it is so clear to see in our history how that our own founding fathers, and this is all lost today, how that our founding fathers saw and understood how important the hand of God was in this country. I don't believe from what I read and what I've come through in thousands of material, I don't believe Maybe there was somebody out there that did, but I've never seen the evidence that they actually understood the parallels between Israel and where they are. I, I, don't, I don't see that. Maybe they did, but I don't see that. But what I do see is that they had come out of an oppressive Europe, that they were persecuted beyond belief, and they wanted a place to teach the Bible under no prejudice of being put up, locked up, shot, killed, tortured because of the Bible that they wanted to use, which was a King James 1611 authorized version. And our founding fathers, it's clear of what they did see. They did see that if a country was going to succeed, it would never succeed without God 
as its founder and foundation. So what they did was, and I don't want to turn this into a civics lesson, but you know, uh, but you got to see some of this to understand it. Uh, so what they did was they they set it up as a republic instead of a democracy. When you say the Pledge of Allegiance, I don't have, I haven't heard it said for a long time. I don't know they've changed so much now, but it used to go, uh, you know, into the republic for which it stands. Nobody knows what a republic is today, and uh, it's a thing where we've we've lost all of that. You know, a democracy is simply a format, a simple format where the majority rules. You have 100 people, 51%, you get to do whatever you want to do. But a republic is not based on that. A, A republic is a rule of a nation by established officials who follow an unchanging law in 90% of what they have in their government. In our case, with the, with the country, it was the Bible. And uh, in a republic, they're the things that the Bible has legislated and established, and it's clear, then there's no voting to change those things. Like same-sex marriages. They knew that Adam and Eve was the first marriage in the Bible, and they knew the Bible says, I don't know how many times, that it's a man and a woman. There was no confusion from Adam and Eve to Adam and Steve. There, there wasn't any real breakdown in those things. They, they followed the established legislated principles that are found in the Word of God. Now, in a republic, they're free. If you want to raise the price of corn or change the price of gas or change the price of, 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 of goods, if you want to take and make uh, Levi jeans uh, $35 a piece when they put holes in them, $80 a piece, then you're free to do that in a republic. But a republic does not change the things that are legislated by the format that you're holding it to. In our case, in the beginning, was, was the Word of God. Noah Webster, we have his 1828 dictionary in the back. And the 1828 dictionary is, I, I think, is, is Noah Webster was an educator. He set up one of the founding fathers who set up the modern school system and, and put the curriculum together, and he wrote the dictionary of that time. And uh, the 1828 edition is based on a King James 1611 authorized version. A lot of the definitions of words you'll find in there, he'll give you the reference in the Bible for it. He was a saved man. And he said... He said in a republic, it, it has to be, the Bible has to be its foundation. And it, it's just that simple. And it's a thing where republic, you know, they can't change those things that are legislated by God uh, in, in the Word of God. And, you know, and when, we, when we broke from England through the Revolutionary War, overnight, we were a country now without any government. We all we had was the founding fathers that wanted to break from, from King George V, but it, it was iffy because it looked like we may lose that Revolutionary War. But when we won and we broke with England, overnight we now were faced with a country that, that had no government. And uh, so each state began to draft its own state constitution to form up the government. Delaware did it in, in 1776. Vermont also did it in 1776. Kentucky did it in 1796. And New Hampshire did it in 1776. And then North Carolina did it also in 1776. 
all of these state constitutions had within their constitution that the whole public office in these states, you had to believe, one, the Bible was the Word of God, and two, there was an impending judgment for men who violated God's principles. <laughs> in, in, in Vermont, are you kidding me? Vermont, look at Vermont today. You know what we got out of Vermont? I mean, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Delaware. You know, we got a Delaware, Joe Biden. I mean, these states at one time laid the foundation and said, you cannot hold public office without believing the King James Bible is the Word of God and there is a coming judgment. You know why? Because they knew that the Bible was an absolute line of reasoning that you needed to follow. And if you're going to be in public office, not only do you have to follow the Bible, but you have to follow it right because you have to agree there is a coming judgment for you if you don't do what's right. Lost today. Where is it today? You know, it's 1 Thessalonians 2.13 for uh, with this cause also, thank we God without ceasing. For when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectively worketh also when you believe. That's where they were. That's where they were. And of course, it's a thing where uh, it's, just, it's just incredible. John Lott. Show you the mindset back there from where we're at today. John Lott was one of the founding fathers, and he said this. He says, you know what? They were talking about good government and having a good government. And he said this, if you have good laws, you're going to have good government. William Penn, another founding father, the state of Pennsylvania is named after him. William Penn said, no, the key to good government is not good laws, but rather good men, saved men. He said, governments are like clocks that are set in motion by men. Boy, is that so true. He went on to say that good laws do good, but good men do better. Because good laws may lack good men, but good men will never lack good laws nor pass bad ones. What an incredible insight into building a government. This is what we had back in the day. Our founding fathers wanted this country founded on God's principles. It's just that simple. You know, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, they, uh, they wrote the draft of the first Declaration of Independence. And when they brought it back to the founding fathers, they only had one reference to God in it. And the founding fathers said, hey, that isn't going to work for us because we can never forget the hand of God in our country. So they sent it back and they rewrote the thing and they came back and added three more which gives us in our Declaration of Independence four references to God Almighty. And wow, what the four references were is exactly what this country needs today which have forgotten. First of all, they went back and they put in there that God is eternal as a lawgiver. They went in and they established the fact that God was the Creator. The third thing, they established that God was a supreme judge. And the fourth thing they put back in there, that God was the only real protector that this country needed. My goodness. Just happens to be the four missing elements today. 
in America. It's incredible. It's just absolutely incredible. Ben Franklin, who was an unsaved man, by the way. George Washington, who was an unsaved man, by the way. He was a deist. He didn't believe that Jesus Christ was God. James Monroe. They wrote what was called the Northwest Ordinance. The Northwest Ordinance was a decree for setting up the public schools in America that were started way back in the day. And the Northwest Ordinance, one of the things that it stated was that every school had to teach the Bible as part of their curriculum. And this was done up to about 1940. I was born in 1950. When I went to school in the fourth and fifth grade, sixth grade, when Easter came up, it was about the resurrection of Christ. They didn't sidestep the religious side and just say, we're going to have a spring holiday or a spring whatever, a spring break. No, no, no. It was Easter. And I remember clearly they brought in a preacher who preached to all of the kids about Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection. Try that today. I remember that it was a thing where over the loudspeaker or the teacher, they prayed in schools. You started the day in school with prayer. And it's a thing where that's all changed now. In 1893, the Supreme Court voted 9-0. to zero. There was nine justices on it then. That America was a Christian nation. But in 1962, that same Supreme Court banned prayer in schools. And it goes to show you where America once had her greatness from God, but then just as Israel, some 70 years later, look where we're at. Patrick Henry, we all know him, learned about him in school. Give me liberty or give me death. That's what he's noted for. That's what we're taught in school if you're ever taught that anymore. Oh, but that's the way it is. That's not what I remember him for. The great orator Patrick Henry said, it can never be emphasized enough that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christianity. It wasn't founded not on a religion, but on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our founding fathers. And today... For all of us, we experience Haggai chapter 2, verse 3, which I talked about several weeks ago, that the problem with Israel is the problem with, with Christianity today, especially this young generation, and maybe your generation of moms and dads. Some of your grandmas and grandpas could probably identify with it, as I can. And that is the fact that there's no comparison we look around us and we see Christianity at its worst and we think that's the way it always was. We think that's the way it should be because we don't have any real comparison of what was real. We dumped the Word of God in 1888 in America, in Sarasota, Florida, where the Southern Baptist Convention officially dumped the King James Bible and took the RSV of 1888. And from that point on, America began to spiral to where she is today. And my job, hey, 
I know I wear a lot of hats, you know. I deal with a lot of different scenarios and issues. But my job is to make sure you always have a comparison. It's to make sure that, uh, uh, you know, that's why I believe I was born in, in 1950. I mean, uh, I, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, just that, it's, just that, it's just that clear to me. I'm the, riddle, I'm the original middleman. I was there to see the end of it, and I was there to see the demise of it. And I can stand before you today, and I can tell you, what you have today is not what it really is. You have been lied to. You have been deceived. We talk about the government deceiving us and lying to us, and I, I understand that totally and completely. But I want to tell you something. The government and all of its falsehood and disinformation and whatever will put out that isn't true pales in comparison to what Christianity has done to God's people. They've taken your Bible. They've taken your worship. They took the six things from you that I talked about last week. And the salt that was the preserving of this world, God's people, has lost its savor. And now, this is what we have. You say the country's degenerate. The country's degenerate because Christianity is degenerate. There's the problem. I, I like to watch people who come to our church and hang out for a little bit, a couple of weeks, a month maybe, and then they move on someplace else. And, and I, I, I like to observe things. Most of them are good people. They really are. They're nice people. Most of them are, are good men and women who uh, I believe they're saved. I, I believe they really are. And, but, but it's a thing where, uh, in a lot of ways, <laughs> this church will scare the fire out of you. Because this church won't let you stick your head in the sand and pretend everything is okay. This church will tell you the truth about what's going on and what's happening and back it up with everything that you need to know that you know that it's true. And some people... All of their life, and they're good people, but all of their lives, they have just existed. They've never done anything for God. They never got involved in anything. They're Christians without any real purpose. And they're yet they're nice people. They're some of the nicest people you ever met. But along with the nicest people they are, they're also the most worthless people you ever met. All their lives, they've taken everything God had for them. We talked about it last week and never gave one thing back. And it's a fact that uh, you come to church when it's convenient for you. You'll do for God when you're in a jam someplace. I said it last week, God's people, and I put myself into this, we're horrific when it comes to how we abuse God. There is a list on the computer you can go and find pedophiles that have abused women, abused children, and abused women too, but abused children, the pedophile list. There ought to be a list for God's people who abuse God. Uh, because we do. He takes everything. He did everything for us. He, he died on the cross. He paid the extreme price. Oh, the Bible makes it so clear. And yet, we could care less. This is why America is in the mess that she is in today. And my job is to give you a comparison. My job, till the day God calls me home, or he calls us all out of here, is to stand in this pulpit and tell you the truth of the way it really is. And the way it really was. And to point out not in the government what's wrong. Who cares about that? In Christianity, what's wrong? To show you the guys you need to be careful of, the guys that will lie to you 
I don't care about what the government does. I expect them to do whatever they're going to do. But God's people should be different. And the greatest proof that what I'm saying is true is God's people today. You'll hear a message like this. You'll walk out that door and you'll stick your head right back in the sand again and pretend you never heard it. And that's just the way it is. Now today, we're going to finish out John chapter 4. And uh, we will again look at some key places uh, to this uh, uh, text today. And we're going to see both some things that are both doctrinal and some things that are inspirational. You're going to see some things that, again, will help you put your Bible together through a trained eye. But you're also going to see some practical applications of why things are the way that they are. In fact, as we read down through here and I begin to work through this thing, you might as well know I got five things that I want to, uh, in our text today, that I want to talk about. So let's begin reading here in John chapter 4, pick it up in verse 43, and we'll come down to the end of the chapter. Now here's what he said. Now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galatians received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast. For they also went unto the feast. So Jesus came again unto Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. That was John chapter 2. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and went his way. You know, I always looked at that, and I thought to myself, I guess that is the true test of this guy was really who he said he was. You know, sometimes God will test our love for him or our belief in the word of God to him by something that's very precious in our life. You know, this guy obviously loved his son. He went all the way he did and found Jesus, and his son is ready to die. You know, this guy must have had tremendous faith in what Jesus said because when Jesus, Jesus didn't go down and heal his son like he did many times. You know what he did? He just said, go thy way, thy son is healed. And the guy believed him. How many times have we been in a jam and God has told us what he was going to do for us and we can't believe it? How many times has God done things in your life and my life that are incredible things and we were up against something or we needed something and God in His Word, in His principle said, I will, my God shall supply all of your need and we can't rest in that. This guy, with his very child that he loved, was able to rest. You know, it's one of the blessings back in the day that you didn't have cell phones. You didn't have internet. He couldn't call up back home and say, hey, is he healed yet? He had to simply believe what the Son of God told him, that he was healed, and he went on his way and went back home. How many of us could have done that? I, probably me. I'd have followed around and said, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, 
I just got to ask this. Are, are you sure you got the right kid? I mean, I don't want to go home and find him dead. I mean, I believe who you are, and I believe what you said, but, you know, you're a busy man, and there's all kinds of people out there sick, and you're healing everybody. Did you get the right address? Yeah, I got the right address. Oh, good, praise the Lord. And you know what? We start second-guessing him. We all do. Next thing I do is I go over to one of the disciples, and I said, hey, I don't want to bother him again, but you think you really got my kid before I go home? I just want to make sure this thing is okay. That's where we are. This guy came up and said, my son is, is, is the point of death. Jesus said, go home, he's healed. Yes, sir. Now let's believe in what the Word of God says. Why can't we do that? Why can't we do that? You dropped your credit card, but I'll get it. Let me have that. <laughs> right, before I go any farther, may I ask a personal question? What's the limit? So, verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed. There it is. He believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him. Why can't we? See? And he went his way. And, he was, and, and as he was going down, the servant met him and, and told him, uh, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour which he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew it was at the same time in which Jesus had said unto him, Thy son liveth, and he himself believed in his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Now I don't know anything about this guy, but I like him because after he got back, he wasn't just satisfied with the fact that his son was healed. He wanted to find out exactly when it took place. And I'm telling you, you need to keep a journal of the things, that miracles that God does in your life. You need to write them down. Don't be satisfied that he just did it. You need to inquire and look and see why he did what he did when he did. It's much more than that. Well, Let's have a word of prayer before we get in here, and, and we'll get going. And uh, J. Frank Norris, would you stand up? And you're back to your old former status. Let's see if you could pray like J. Frank Norris would pray. Pray for our service this morning. Now... We've talked about a trained eye. A trained eye is key to unlocking the scriptures. I, I try to give you the things that, and so as we come down through this today, I'm going to play your role. I'm going to play that I'm you reading through this text, and I'm going to show you what you ought to look for, what I would look for, that would unlock all of this. Because there's a great five principles here. And there's five things, at least, that we can learn about this. So, you know, the first thing I would see is verse 43. It says, now, after two days. Now, I would immediately go back to John chapter 2 in our study back there, and we talked about the, the, the four systems that God has in the Bible to teach you about the second coming of Christ. There's an hour system. There's a, there's a watch system. There's a seven-day system. And then there's a third day system. And we looked at this in John chapter 2 
that after two days, he shows up on the third day and there's a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And I showed you how that that is a, is a key to show you that what you're reading in some way, shape, or form is a picture of the second coming of Christ. Now, you, you got to see that. And that would be the first thing that jumped out at me. Notice there's a paragraph mark at the beginning of 43. That tells me that I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a brand new ball game now and I need to look for things. And the first thing that jumped out at me is after two days. And once I know how that plays out in the Bible, then I'm on my way. Now, in John chapter 2, this is where, as I said, he turned the water to wine. And it's a picture, as I laid out for you, the marriage supper of the Lamb that takes place on the third day. So when this guy gets, this kid gets healed, it's after two days and it's on the third day. So now I know that whatever I have here is going to be more than just a story about a kid who had a fever. We're going to see something here. Now watch how this thing unfolds. You remember all of your Bible is built around two days. The first day is for the nation of Israel, and that is the day of the Lord, and that is, of course, the third day here. The second day would be for New Testament Christianity, and that's the day of Jesus Christ. That's the rapture of the church. So keeping that in your mind now, knowing that we're on the third day, and we know what that means, here's the second thing. And as we see this story unfold, verses 46 through 54, we have the story of a certain nobleman whose son is sick unto death, verse 47. Now Jesus, as I've already commented on, he's not going to this guy's house to heal this boy. And I've told you, and now we see the kid is healed, and I've told you many, many times, the key to the four Gospels of, of, of Christ uh, at, at his first coming to Israel will be that every person that Jesus deals with, every person who gets healed, Every person who has a, a, an unclean spirit, every person who goes through some trial or tribulation or is dead, every person that he comes into contact with, and if you learn this one simple truth, it'll unlock the scriptures for you, is a picture of Israel's spiritual condition at the first coming of Christ, without exception. If you can remember that and learn that, and before you ever enter into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you start to get into these scenarios with people that Jesus has encounters with, if you can remember that, you're going you're gonna to help yourself in your Bible. You know, it talks about Mary Magdalene, who uh, he crashed out seven, seven unclean spirits. And you look at that and you think, wow, that's a demon-possessed woman, seven unclean spirits. But when you go to Matthew chapter 12 and 13, you have the story that when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he walketh through the dry places seeking rest and findeth none. And then when he comes back in, he brings seven more spirits with him that are worse than the other one was in there. And you'll find those seven unclean spirits listed for you back in the Old Testament. You know why? Because Mary Magdalene is a picture of the nation of Israel who has seven unclean spirits. And the whole story just gets illustrated around, around that woman. You have Lazarus in John chapter 11. We've not yet got to John chapter 11. Probably will here in four or five years. But John chapter 11, you have the story of Lazarus. And Lazarus is dead. And he, Jesus waits two days before he comes to him. And he raises him up the third day. Picture of the nation of Israel. And into that, you have, you have his kinfolk, Mary and Martha. 
Mary, I don't have time to get into it this morning, where Lazarus is a type of the nation of Israel. Mary and Martha are the two types of Christians you're going to find that are associated with the nation of Israel because salvation is of the Jews. See? It's not complicated. It really isn't. Uh, you have the woman with an issue of blood who touches the hem of his garden. And when you read that story, just by a wild stroke of coincidence, she's had that issue of blood 12 years, 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. You have the little girl, Jairus' daughter, who dies, and Christ brings her back to life. And when they all say to him, she's dead, he says to them, she's not dead, she sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. And when he said that, he gave you one of the greatest simple keys anywhere in the Bible that shows you what's going to happen to you when you die. But they laughed at it. They laughed at him just like people laugh at you and me in the Bible today. But that little girl was 12 years old, 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. I don't care where you go. I don't care where you go in the four Gospels. That's the way it's going to be. Every one of them. Nicodemus, same thing. Uh, Maniac of Gadaria, last week, same thing. And one of the great keys in unlocking what's really going on is more than just a historical record of healing here. This is a picture of Israel's healing at the second coming of Christ on the third day. Every one of these people that he encounters, if you just know the keys, you can mark it down, will be a picture one way or the other of Israel's spiritual condition. The prodigal son is another one. I mean, every one of them. I, I mean, we could go on all morning. And just as the Jesus will heal these people in the Gospels, he's going to heal uh, the nation of Israel at the second coming of Christ after two days on the third day. And this is found in Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2, the great chapter on the second coming of Christ. It says the son of righteousness arise, here it comes, second coming of Christ, with what? Healing in his wings. He comes and heals the nation of Israel. Now the third thing. Look at verse 53. And there's two things here. We'll put them together so we don't have to list them separately. So the father knew, you know, after, you know, Jesus tells him that, he goes back and his servant is running to tell him, your, son, your son's been healed. So the father, you know, asks him, when did all this thing turn around? And he says, the seventh hour. So the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, that thy son liveth and himself believed and his whole house. Now, the first thing I want you to see, and you might be asking, why the seventh hour? Well, we know that there's seven years in the tribulation period, and just like this kid got healed on the seventh hour, Israel's going to get their healing on the seventh year of the tribulation. You see, it's things like that that you put two and two together, come up with four. Now, the second thing here is, it's a great key, would be where it says, his whole house. When you find the phrase, the whole house in the Bible, it'll probably be a reference to the whole house of Israel. Uh, and you'll find that the two key verses, and we're going to get into those here in a little bit, or at least one of them, but you're going to find that the two key verses that define that for you will be Acts chapter 2, verse 36, and Acts chapter 7, verse 42. Because there it's clearly telling you the whole house is always connected to the whole house of Israel. 
You'll find it in Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 11. You'll also find it in Matthew chapter 10, verse 6, over and over again, where it talks about the whole house of Israel. So when this man says that he believed in his whole house, he's showing you that not only did his son get healed, but the whole house on the third day. Incredible way that you unlock your Bible. You see, and you notice I haven't went to the Greek one time yet. Haven't caught on to Hebrew. Uh, you know what? I haven't changed one word in the Bible because here in this church, we just stick with the Bible the way that it is. Read it, believe it, and then and then teach it. And we believe that God wrote His book, so He had as the author, He had the right to put it in any way He wanted it, and He put everything in His book that that's all you need. Okay? And then the only other thing you need to learn his book is the church because that is his body and uh, that's what teaches you. So without those two things working for you, you ain't going anywhere. And that's why you have so many of God's people. Oh, they want to be great soul winners. Oh, they want to do this. They want to do the ministry. But they know absolutely nothing about the Bible. And they've been saved for 20, 30 years. Why? And of course, you just see it all the time. And it's a, it's a tragedy, but that's the way that it is. Most of the people you're going to meet today out there who know nothing about the Bible but claim to love God and want to do this and see people saved and all that stuff, they're phony. If, if you've been saved 10, 15, 20 years and that book doesn't open itself up to you, now I realize, I realize some of you were in bad churches and you come here and now you're on fire and you're going to town. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the people that have had this book for 20, 30, 40 years. And you want to make a change? Really, really. You're, you're so foolish to think that you're going to make a change in somebody else's life. And you've never allowed that book to make a change in your life, other than salvation. You don't know it any better now than you did before. And, of course, that's welcome to 20th century Christianity. That's just the where it is. Now, one of the things that you're going to learn from this is you're going to understand this key that, uh, that this is the way you figure out at least the Gospels anyhow. And this is why you will find people today who will always try to put places like this into the church age. A couple of Thursday nights, somebody asked a question about, you know, I forget where it was now. Somebody asked a question of how do you know, oh, Acts, is it Acts chapter 2 or one of those places? You know, that this wasn't talking about the church. And, I mean, it was right there in front of you. But this is what happens today when you forsake your Bible. You don't follow the rules of Bible study given to you by God that he put in his own Bible. You just make it up as you go along. And your whole life becomes a, a made-up fictional movie. And, it's a, it's, it, and I showed you, you, you see it in Matthew chapter 24, where they'll try to take that. Oh, that's where it was. It was Matthew chapter 24. And they said, how do you know this is not to, a, to the church? Just read the chapter. You'll see it in Matthew chapter 25. We've talked about it many, many times. Ten virgins, five are wise and five are foolish. We talked about that Thursday night. People think that that's New Testament Christianity and somebody losing your salvation. This is what happens when you don't follow a systematic theology of the Bible interpreting itself using the words in the Bible instead of changing them and just follow the chain of references that God has given you and as the man from Capernaum, believing what God tells you. 
When he told me that that Bible is the Word of God, I believe it. End of story. And, of course, uh, you know, I've met many, many people in Bible college with great degrees that says, uh, you know, I don't believe that. And my answer to them is you ought to get your money back. Somebody cheated you. You paid all of that money, thousands and thousands of dollars, all those years of school to come out believing that the Bible isn't true. What an idiot you are. Want to buy a car in my lot with no engine in it? Great gas mileage. And of course, I've told you many, many times, you cannot directly many times put these stories into the church age. Indirectly, there's some inspirational applications many times. But trying to put them directly into the church will be a disaster and always will lead to, to bad doctrine. The most famous ones are, are, you know, Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 10. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount, you know. And from those five chapters, he goes through, and this becomes for the men and women today who try to put that into the church, the social gospel. This is the salvation plan for every, you know, for every Catholic, for every Lutheran, for every Methodist, for every Presbyterian, and for every Episcopalian. The social gospel that we now that are saved and Christians were to help our fellow man, and that is the gospel. Forget salvation, forget sin, forget the doctrinal differences. Do unto others before they do it to you. Uh, that's, not, that's my thing. Do unto the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do it for you. And, of course, uh, you know, this is, this is what they try to do to make the world a better place by helping your neighbor. And I'm all for helping your neighbor. I've never understood, you know, the Salvation Army today uh, is, a, is a, here again, no comparison. It's completely a social thing. The old Salvation Army was started by General Booth. He was a street preaching soul winner. And the original thing was Salvation Army. It meant what it said. It's a social thing today. Why, if General Booth would go to the first, the, the next Salvation Army church meeting, he'd have a heart attack before he got past the first ashtray. I mean, it's a thing where it's a disaster because they've lost the comparison. When General Booth died, he died, I think it was right around Christmas, and he was very old, and he always would give his people an encouraging speech before the Christmas, and they all looked forward to it. And he was really in ill health and sick, and he died either the next day or very shortly thereafter. So all the radio stations were tuned in to hear the great message of General Booth to his people. You know what his message was? It was one word, others. That's what his life was about. It wasn't just giving them food. It wasn't giving them clothes. What good do you do to somebody if you give them food? I mean, when a disaster takes place, the Salvation Army is the first on the scene. They got food. They got clothes. They got housing. What good do you do giving somebody all of those things if you let their soul die and go to hell for all of eternity? I'm all for the food. I'm all for the clothes. I'm all for that, all that stuff. But give them the gospel. Because usually when somebody, as I said earlier, when somebody is going through some catastrophe in their life, they're open, and God could do it, but we give them a burrito and send them on their way. And that's where we're at today, changing society instead of changing men, and that'll never work. And they're continually trying to put all of these things that I'm showing you this morning in these passages into some kind of direct application of this is the church. No, it's not. It's a picture of Israel. You may glean some things out of it principle-wise, but let's face it, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16 tells us that the New Testament doesn't even come into the effect of the death of Christ. 
Now, this is called what I'm giving you this morning, in case you haven't figured it out yet, what's talked about in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, that you were to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You've got to rightly divide it. And that's what this is all about. Now, the fourth thing. Now, if I was reading this, the next thing I would see is that uh, we have signs and wonders here. Now, here again, you're going to find a whole bunch of people out there that claim to be Christians, and uh, they, they want to teach you that the signs and wonders what happened to Israel uh, or around today. And they want you to believe in tongues. They want you to believe in healing. They want you to believe in raising the dead and all of the things uh, that they do. There, there's even a group down in Missouri, down in Texas, and I'm sure they're everywhere. They call the snake handlers. They, uh, they worship snakes. Uh, out of the Bible says that you can pick up a serpent like Paul did. And it, he didn't pick it up, but he, it bit him. So they have copperheads and rattlesnakes and they play with them and they hold them up and they praise God and they speak in tongues and the snakes, I'm not sure what the snakes do, but anyway, they're, they're, they, that, that's what they follow, see? They follow. And of course, if we tried that here, most of you ladies would be hanging from the ceiling out there or the rest of you would be out of here. And, uh, you know, but that's, that's what they do. And now there are two verses. When it comes to signs and wonders, you don't need three. Really, you don't need more than one, but you got two. That every Christian ought to know and understand when it comes to putting this kind of stuff into a context. And the first one is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. And it tells you that it's the Jew that seeks these signs and wonders. It clearly tells you in that verse that the Gentiles, you and me, we don't seek those things. The Jew requires a sign, but the Greeks, Gentiles, me and you, we seek after wisdom. That verse clearly tells you that it isn't the Gentiles that ought to be looking for the sign gifts, the wonders. It's the Jew. And if that wasn't enough, when you go over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22 you'll find there that it tells you that tongues, one of the wonders, along with the rest of the wonders, and they're all listed for you in Mark 16, 16, but tongues uh, are for a sign, and they're a sign to the Jew. has nothing to do with the Gentiles. You see, with those two verses right there, the charismatic just goes out the window, or anybody else that believes in it, and they have no, they have no doctrinal stand. But... When you don't believe the Bible and your experiences or your feelings are more important than what the Word of God says, you don't care what the Bible says. And as I said in Mark 16, 16, it tells you what these signs and wonders are. They're going to cast out devils. They're going to speak in new tongues. They're going to take up serpents. Just there you go. And if they're bitten, it isn't going to hurt you like Paul did when he got bit. They're going to drink any deadly thing and it's going to, they're not going to they're not going to, uh, they're not going to, it's not going to hurt you. And then, of course, they're going to lay hands on the sick and heal. And these are the sign gifts. And if you ever want to put a charismatic up against the wall, just ask them, you believe in the sign gifts? Yeah, then get a little bottle of uh, hydrochloric acid and said, drink this down and let's see how it works for you. You know what he'll tell you? He said, well, that would be tempting the Lord. Those verses only work if somebody sneaks in and, and puts it and you don't know it. Are you kidding me? What kind of sign is that? 
I mean, really. So you, if you just accidentally get in a, you know, bit with a snake. And I always thought it was weird because drinking the poison was tempting the Lord. But the boys down in southern Missouri handling the snakes is not. You see, there's no consistency to it because it's not based on the Bible. Now, when the 12 disciples went out in Matthew chapter 10, again, this is what they do. They're told to heal the sick, raise the dead, give by sight to the blind, jump tall buildings to the legal bound. They're told to do all of these things. But look in the context. They're only to go to the nation of Israel, not the Gentiles. Now, the key passage to all of this, signs and wonders, uh, would be Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts is probably the key book in understanding uh, the New Testament. Right now, in uh, Bible Institute, we're finishing up. We're finishing up. Prov, uh, up um, um, Hebrews. The next book that we will crack into, maybe even next week, will be the Book of Acts. Now we will break down the Book of Acts that you will never have a problem with it ever again if you learn how it breaks down. So I want to read for you Acts chapter two here, a few verses, and I want to show you how that you put this in touch with the signs and wonders. So stay with me here quickly. It says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord uh, in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were uh, sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they all were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now that when it was noised abroad that the multitude came together, uh, they were confounded because they heard every man speak in his own language. Now the first thing you ought to get out of this is he connects the word tongues to a language. That's the first thing you ought to see. Now I know people are going to say, well, it's a heavenly tongue and all this stuff. And you know, the big thing like go back to 1 Corinthians 14 and talk about the unknown tongue. And yet they don't even have a clue why the word unknown is in italics back there. They don't know. So he says, I want you to see that he connects tongues with a language. And then just so you were the slow one in the class, verse 8, 9, 10, and 11, he gives the very languages and the very countries they're all from. So this is not some jibber-jabbish thing that you hear, uh, you know, Oral Roberts do or some charismatic on TV or in the churches. This is a language, and it's their own language. And I want you to notice he says there in verse 5, they were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews. There's no Gentiles here. The church is not in effect yet. These are Jews out of every nation. What does that mean? Back in 606 B.C., when the nation of Israel got scattered from Jerusalem, they went into every nation. That was 600 B.C. That is, that, is, that is 400 years ago. So these Jews have been out there for 400 years. They've lost their own native tongue. They've adopted the language of the countries that they're in now. But God wants to bring them back to Jerusalem. So when he wants to tell them about the coming kingdom and the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives the apostles the apostles, the apostles, the ability to speak in tongues, which is their own language, and they hear the gospel. How simple is that? Now, it, it's just that simple. 
And, uh, you know, it's a thing, this was prophesied back in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11. Other tongues, stammering lips, but it's to Israel. And I said, verse 6 and verse 8, language is tongues. Tongues will always be a language. Now, note verse 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, the charismatic would have you believe this is all Christians. First of all, the day of Pentecost has nothing to do with any New Testament church. <clears throat> Did you ever have Paul, when he laid out the book of Ephesians to the church, <clears throat> bring up the day of Pentecost? Did you ever see it in any of his things? I mean, you think if it was something for the church, <clears throat> Paul would have said something about it. The only place you find it is in Acts chapter 1, dealing with the Jews. You know why? Pentecost had nothing to do with the church. It had nothing to do with Christianity. It's an Old Testament Jewish feast. But they can't get that. Now, here's what else they do. It says, look at verse 1 again. Or it says there, it, 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 when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, the charismatic would get you to believe that that's all Christians. And this is where you get the fire and the gods and the speaking in tongues. That here's where it fell in all Christians. Really? Really? I don't want to break your day up, but go back to the preceding chapter there. In chapter 1, the last verse, verse 26. When it says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. Who was? The verse before in the last chapter, the last verse tells you the 12 apostles. It wasn't all of Christianity. The people that are in one accord in one place are 12 men. That's all you got. Why? Could this to Israel. And so, uh, you know, it's a thing where that's how you look at it. Now look at Look at, in the same chapter there, look at verse 16 through 20. But this was what was spoken of by prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons shall, daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants, shall my handmaids, will I pour out in those days of my spirit, and shall prophesy. And I will show, here it is, wonders in the heaven above, here it is, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the noon into blood. Ha, 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 contact before the great and notable day of the Lord come. Now that, that quotation there from Joel chapter 2, you couldn't find somebody that believes in tongues and healing to explain Joel chapter 2 if their life depended on it. Joel chapter 2 was written to the nation of Israel, told them what to look before before the second coming of Christ has nothing to do with the church. And that's what this quotation is from. It's a reference to the second coming of Christ to the Jews, not the Gentiles or the church. No Christianity is even in place yet. They're not first called Christians, Acts chapter 11. That's a long way down the line, pal. Now, Acts chapter 2, look at verse 14, just so you missed it. Mark these in your Bible, you don't have it. Number one, all that dwell at Jerusalem. Is that you? Two, Acts 2, Acts 2.22. Ye men of Israel. Is that you? Verse 29. Men and brethren. Is that you? Verse 36. The whole house of Israel. See how it works? Now all we've done is just connected the dots. I've not changed one word. I've not changed one thing. I just walked you through a systematic breakdown of the Bible. So then signs and wonders will never have anything to do with the church age. So... 
when I find Jesus back here saying to this guy, except you see signs and wonders you don't believe, I know that this is a picture of the nation of Israel in the tribulation period. Joel chapter 2. And Israel, John chapter 4, verse 48, will be a key to putting uh, all that in the right context. Now, how could you miss that unless you just simply don't want to follow your Bible? Now, the last thing, and this is where all this stuff up to here is stuff that you need to have in your Bible that you can rightly divide your Bible. Now we're going to get into a practical principle, and this is a good one. This will answer a lot of questions for you. The last thing I want you to see, and it's a great principle, and this will be to all of us. This is not just a doctrinal thing, but this is a, a really practical principle. Look at John chapter 4, verse 44. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Now, I've talked to you many, many times about how that you, you have two or three Gospels that will have the same story, and you don't just go with one. We talked about this Thursday night with Marion's good question. And this is the importance of getting all the passages together because when you go to Mark chapter 6, verse 4, you have the same story, and he says the same thing, but he goes a little deeper. But Jesus saith unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. Now, doctrinally, that'll be Christ making a reference to his house, the house of Israel. But, oh, my, what a great practical principle this will be. Now, inspirationally, he's telling us that you may be a great Christian to everybody around you, but sometimes not, not true within your own family. You're going to find... When you get right with God or you get saved and you try to go back and deal with your family, brothers, sisters, moms, dads, they're going to be sometimes the hardest people you're ever going to try to reach. And people scratch their head and wonder why. Well, this verse is the beginning of your understanding of that. And if I may, for the next few moments, break it down for you. There's a couple of reasons why your brothers and sisters, your own children sometimes, your moms and dads, once you get, quote, unquote, right with God, you know, and you get saved and praise the Lord for it, you go back to your family to try to tell them what's happened, and they don't buy it. They're skeptical of it. And many times, they're the hardest people that you're ever going to reach. And one of the reasons is because they know you better than other people around you. I mean, we all look wonderful to each other, but you talk to your brothers and your sisters and you'll get the dirt lowdown on you, see? I mean, your family have seen you at your worst and you want to say to them, look at me at my best, but they have a hard time sometimes getting past what they saw in the worst. And sometimes people don't understand that. They don't get that. And uh, they can't get past it sometimes. Uh, many times, uh, I've seen fathers and mothers make some really bad mistakes on how they train up their kids. I've seen pastors. I've seen Christians who were deep in the ministry, and I, and I had them all my life in my ministry back in, back in the day. Uh, I saw some of the greatest 
deacons that you ever saw in your life, some men who could teach the book of Daniel, and they were looked at as great Bible. Most of them were at a Calvary Bible college, you know, it's right next to the bottomless pit. And they were all these great guys and knew all these great things, but their kids, their kids were a mess. And I can say to you right now, and Steve Brackeen knows this is true, because we talk about it all the time, and he, he was a mess at one time. He's not quite as bad as a mess now as he was back then, but that's because I slapped him around in Marshall's Alley more than once, didn't we, Steve, huh? And it's because he knows it's true. These guys, are kids are all gone now, aren't they? They're gone. They're not around anywhere. He bumps into them from time to time. No church, no nothing. Why? Because they saw the phoniness of mom and dad. Mom and dad was one thing at church, but it was something else at home. And we're, 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 we all around, and we thought they were wonderful. The kids saw them as they really were. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where that's the way it works. I mean, they're super soul winners to us, but their own kids are probably lost. I remember one time we had this couple that they were big into Bill Gothard. And Bill Gothard was a joke back then as it is. I don't even know if they have him anymore. And Bill Gothard was the, was the second coming of Christ. And they were the most legalistic people. And every year they came to the church and they had this big thing. And everybody in Kansas City went to the Bill Gothard seminaries. I never went. I even had people who I had their kids in my high school class come up to me and say, I'll pay your way if you'll go to Bill Gothard Seminary this time. I said, no, I'm not interested. And the reason why I wasn't interested is because their kids living like hell. Bill Gothard didn't help them. I remember I was baptizing one time, and this lady who was a very pious lady, uh, she, uh, she, she uh, and, and none of those people like me, and I don't know why. But I was getting ready to baptize, and they were in charge of passing out the robes and everything, you know. And she looked at me, and she said, I just don't know how you raise your girls without Bill Gothard. And I said, you're kidding me, right? And she said, well, what do you mean? She said, I said, I just spent last weekend out all night looking for your boy and found him drunk and brought him home. And you got the guts to say that to me, Bill, Bill Gothard, when it doesn't work for you? But that's the way it was back then. You see, they didn't care. And those kids are out there in the world today, and they just, you know, they saw the phoniness. I mean, you get an A for soul winning. You get an F for parenting. And that's all that really matters. You have no water in your own house. People don't, you know, your family looks at you, and they say, hey, (laughs) my dad's telling me to do this. You know what? I know my dad. He says, you know, he's out there. He can be there for everybody else. But when I needed him, he wasn't anywhere around. Sometimes they reject you because your new life brings conviction to them. You're doing what's right and they're not doing what's right and you're doing what's right. It isn't you, it's Christ in you and it brings them under conviction. It's not a personal thing, you see. But that's hard sometimes. If you don't have a good head on your shoulders and you don't understand the principles involved, it's not you Personally, it's Christ in you that has changed your life, and they haven't changed. So they're going to react. It's like, it's like when you get saved and you go back to your old friends and you try to tell them what happened, and they don't understand. You see this with brothers and sisters sometimes, or family members. They, they want to deny that what happened to you is real because it convicts them, and they don't really want to change. So they want to make you think that it really wasn't anything that is going to really change you. 
Hey, I've seen it where you have a single guy or a gal or a girl and a guy who uh, gets saved and does right, and uh, you know, and their 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 their, their families, sisters, moms, brothers, dads, whatever. They'll almost like that they'll align together against you. And when you go to the family picnics or you go to the Thanksgiving, they're always nitpicking at you about something. They're always talking to you about this or that, or they'll bring up something. One of them will be, you know, in the world, will be a rank liberal, and they'll try to draw you into a conversation and try to make you lose your cool. They'll say things or they'll, 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 they'll take little jabs at you. And it's, it's, it's all because your life has made a difference to you, and they see it, but it won't change them. And I, I've seen it. You know, they don't, like, uh, they don't like what you're doing because it shows them what they're not doing. Now, a prophet hath no honor in his own country. You have to understand that. Now, there are exceptions to that. You're going to find that in some cases the whole family just bond together. And, uh, you know, everybody's on the same page. I'm, I'm blessed with Sharon and John and, and Darlene and, and all that, that we're all on the same page and we just, with my family, and it just, you know, it couldn't get any better. I mean, it's just a great, sweet time. I got the greatest sister on the planet, the greatest brother-in-law, you know, that she married, John. It just, you know, you know and I, 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 I was, when Herb Kuntz was here, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Sharon John. He was asking me about Sharon and John. Of course, this was a long time ago. But Herb didn't remember that he actually won John to Christ back in the day. I was just young. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't want to take a chance on it. So uh, Herb was my go-to guy. And I remember taking John over there. And that's how it all went down. You see, it's a thing where there are exceptions to it. But whether there is or there isn't. There's a way to deal with all of this. And I want to show you how do you to be, what I say all the time, my favorite phrase, to be smarter than the problem. And a couple of things you need to do. First of all, you don't take it personal. And that's hard because it's your family. It's your mom. It's your dad. It's your brothers, your sisters. You love them. You want them to do what's right. You don't want to see them die and go to hell. You love them. You care about them. And when they are against you, directly or indirectly, it's tough. And it's a thing where you, you, know, you, you want it so desperately that sometimes you cross over the line and you fall into their trap. And rule number one is being smarter than a problem. Rule number two is don't take it personal. Say, Bob, how do you do that? Because you understand what you're dealing with. You realize that it's not about you. If Christ wasn't in your life, you'd be drinking on the boat while you're fishing again. Christ has made the difference and it sets you apart. But didn't Jesus say that he didn't come to put everybody together? He came to set at variance, families. So you've got to be smarter than the problem. You've got to not take that personal and you've got to realize that now your greatest mission field probably lies before you in your own family. So you put forth a plan to deal with it based on your understanding biblical that it's not you, but it's Christ in you. And in the Bible, you'll have a plan for when it's your own kids who think that you're phony or don't care about 
going to church. I don't care about this or that. And, you know, and, and many times we just want to brush that under the carpet and pretend we're some great soul winner or some great in some great ministry and just, and just never really think about the real damage that is done there that someday that kid may wind up in a lake of fire. So you have a plan. And one of the great plans in the Bible would be understanding the complete layout of the prodigal son. That's a good place to start, but there's many other places you can go. In the Bible, if it's your family, moms, dad, brothers and sisters, then you start with Joseph and his brother, Genesis chapter 40 through Genesis chapter 50. Now there's a great story. Joseph, when you study the story, you find that the problem with Joseph was the fact that God was in his life and it wasn't in the life of his brothers. And they resented him for it. Wind up, they almost tried to kill him, but they sold him into slavery. And you know, when you look at that and you sit back at that, so many of us have been in that same scenario where our families were against us. But watch how the hand of God, if you don't take it personal and you don't lose sight of the principle, this is the great story. So what does God do? The hand of God brings Joseph down into Egypt. The hand of God raises him up to the second position in the kingdom right under Pharaoh. And then he sends a famine down to his family that forces the same boys who put him in slavery to come ask him for something now. And he disguises. They didn't recognize him. And so we go through a little flipping around there, you know, and there's all good principles in that. We don't have time for that this morning. But finally... Finally, Joseph can't stand it anymore. And he reveals himself to his brother. You know what? He could have had him killed. He could have just snapped his fingers and they would have cut their heads off and threw them into the alligator pit. But he didn't. You know why? He didn't take it personal. You know why he didn't take it personal? Because he saw God was doing something bigger in the thing. And the greatest principle you can find that shows you Joseph understood his situation and you need to understand yours where he says, they meant it for my evil, but God meant it for my good. And through that great catastrophe in that family, you know what God did? He got the nation of Israel down to Egypt. Part of the formulation leading into the establishment and the calling out of God's people. The hand of God was in the whole thing. Joseph saw that. You cannot forsake those stories in the Bible because we find ourselves in those exact same stories and we can do one or two things. We can follow the biblical principles and do what we need to do because your family can be the hardest people to reach. You don't fight and argue with them. You don't try to defend yourself. Bible says a soft answer turneth away wrath. Somebody clobbers you and says something to you at a Thanksgiving dinner or this or that. Well, you're not this or you're not that or I don't believe that. You just simply say, you know what? I know I'm working at it every day. Maybe you pray for me. Now, what are you going to say to that? What, what, what are they, what's the answer to that? Nothing. Now, if you said, well, I'll tell you what, I saw what you've done, then you're in a fight. Smarter than a problem. That's what they want. They want to draw you into a conflict. They want to draw you into a fight. And you'll lose your cool. You'll say something nasty. 
and then they'll walk away justifying themselves by saying to themselves, see, they're not really different. You've got to be smarter than that. You've got to realize and see it for what it is. You've got to see it that they may mean for your evil, but they don't know any better. They're, it's not you personally. It's what you now believe. You've got to be bigger than that. Romans 14 says, one says, ye that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please yourselves. And when you do that, you get mad, you lose your temper, you've given them exactly what they want. No, no. You're smarter than the problem. Bible says in Proverbs 26, 4, answer not a fool according to his folly. You sidestep the issues. Why? Because you're smarter than the problem and you realize that that's not the way to deal with it. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, they may never change. You may never win them. I, I can't guarantee that. Nobody can. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they do that's wrong. It only matters that you do what's right. And give God the opportunity to work through your life. You know, all God needs in any fight between two people, God's people, all God needs to solve the problem is just one of the people to do what's right. Because God will reach down through that person and he'll do what needs to be done. Now, they may get it right, they may not. It doesn't matter as long as you and I do what's right. You deny them the fight and just allow the Christ in your life to do what it's going to do. And, you know, like I said, maybe they never will. Maybe it'll never turn the corner. Now, you change, but uh, you, you show them that I'm not like that anymore. You don't give them the fight. You don't give them what they want. You don't get in an argument with them. You just simply let God be God in your life. You always take the high road. You always put yourself above the circumstance because you should be smarter than the circumstance. And then you look for the open door because it'll come. The reason why we never get the open door is because we shoot our mouth off and get our foot in our mouth and then we cause all kinds of problems. If you just do what God has called you to do and you take the high road, at some point God will give you an open door. Now, they may not do anything with it, but God will allow you that. Years ago, I had a guy when I was at Hoover Company and I was preaching and passing out tracts. He'd always, 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 always give me trouble. He'd make fun of me. He'd cuss me out. He'd laugh at me. He'd do all these things. He'd made a mockery of it when I was around trying to do everything. And you know what? I didn't get mad at him. I was very nice to him. And one day about four months later, I was back in the storage area and he pulled his fork truck in and got off and come over. And I thought we were going to have another round. You know what he said? He says, Bob, he says, I, I want you to know I'm sorry for all that I've said. He says, I know that you're a Christian. And he says, to me, you're a real Christian. And he says, I just want you to know my baby's really sick and in the hospital. And I would really count it a privilege if you would pray for my baby. You know what? Two weeks later, I won that kid to Christ. But you see, if I'd have fought with him, if I'd have gotten a battle with him, if I'd have started putting names back to him, we never would have got there. Hey, on the cross, he took all the shame and abuse. And the Bible says he opened out his mouth. Why can't we do the same thing? And let God be God. 
You look for the open door. This will require you, obviously, to have a working knowledge with the Holy Spirit of God, to know when to and when not to. You know, in the Bible, there's a great principle that I've taught it to you many times. It's found back in the book of Nehemiah and back in the book of Ezra, where I would go to teach it. And it's simply about God having the right man in the right place at the right time. Lining yourself up to where the Holy Spirit of God uh, is at. And uh, you have the right man in the right place in the right time. And then God gives him the right things to say. And it all comes down to the Holy Spirit of God, the leading of the Holy Spirit of God. When the Bible says in John chapter 16, the Holy Spirit of God shall lead and guide you into all truth, he's not just talking about you studying your Bible. Also in dealing with people. The key to all of it for us is going back to that thing in John chapter 4 where he says we worship him in spirit and truth. So as we close out this chapter, five great principles. Five great principles. And we'll hold up there and uh, look forward to Thursday night Bible study. Make sure you sign up for Memorial.